Grab your seat. Let's welcome up Pastor Mike. The letters that Jesus uh, sent to each of the churches in, in the Asia Minor area. There's seven churches there. We're on the fourth church, the church of Thyatira. So if you'll get your, your worship folder out, we'll read this uh, message from Jesus together. I like it when you read out loud with me. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star." Now, all of the historians uh, and many of the commentators talk about how Thyatira, of all the seven cities that Jesus wrote to, is the most insignificant. It was an unimportant city in an unimportant place. But it's so interesting because Jesus wrote more and said more to this church than any other church. So in some ways you have to begin to realize that what seems unimportant to us is not always unimportant to the Lord. And this, this town was a town of workers. It was a town of tradesmen and craftsmen. There were many, many guilds. There were many, many trade unions. There were people who dyed cloth, dyed wool. There were people who uh, made all kinds of things. Matter of fact, they were known uh, throughout the world in some ways for their uh, beauty of their quality of the wool that they dyed. Uh, we find uh, that Paul, when he travels to Philippi, uh, that he meets a woman by the name of Lydia, who is a dyer of wool and who has a whole huge enterprise of, of both dyeing and selling wool. She's from Thyatira. She learned to dye in her home city. And then she took her specialty out into the world and became a, a very successful woman. So the town is a, a place where it's more blue collar. It's hard workers. Uh, 
one of the characteristics of the town is that they said it was on the way to important towns. And uh, so their job was to slow any conquering army down so that they'd be weakened by the time they get to the real city. So that everything about this city is kind of a, it's sort of a, a, a study in insignificance. And yet Jesus says, you're going to get the most of my message and the most of my words. So to him, they were a very important place. Now, this, the, the pattern of these messages, and it's, I, I want you to realize they're not just letters. They're prophetic. They are, they are, the, they are the opening of the heart of Jesus to the heart of his church. They're laying bare the secrets of what's going on in the lives of the people. And so when he speaks of who he is that is writing to them, his revelation of himself is itself prophetic. Now, the first thing that he says is, is I am the one who's writing to you is the son of God. Now, if someone says they are the son of God, they are saying they are God. They are deity. They are divinity. So first and foremost, this is Jesus speaking to his church and saying, I'm not just, you know, uh, a good religious teacher. I'm not just a good moral, uh, you know, behavioralist or anything else. I am God. And, And secondly, he's saying something really very interesting in this. And it's this, that the God over Thyatira was the son of Zeus. So Zeus was the almighty God of the Greek pantheon. He was the highest of the high. Now, what I'm about to say will not sound very modern. And what I'm about to say might, for some of you, turn you off. But let me start it off with this. If you already believe there's a supernatural, then it is not too ridiculous to realize that your realm and your world is being interacted in a spiritual way all the time. If you can accept that there's a God, then you can also accept that there's a a realm, sometimes unseen realm, that's at work in all kind of ways in your life. But there are many of those who went before us and just said, well, isn't it nice to read about the Greeks and the Romans and to read the myths and to read the little, you know, the morality tales that are there. And, and those unsophisticated primitives believe that stuff, but we, we know it wasn't really real. But, but what if what they're doing is describing the spiritual realm? The Bible actually says that there are fallen angels over whom they still maintain power over territories. Paul says that your war in your life is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So what Jesus is saying here is that you live in Thyatira. You live in a region that is controlled by a demon who calls himself the son of Zeus. He's real. He's he's at work. But Jesus says, but I'm the son of the true living God. I'm not a regional deity. I am the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. And so what he's he's saying is there's a clash. And there's a conflict. and, And I'm asking my church to look above their circumstances and to look above what their region and their territory and their 
this particular era that they live in or generation they're a part of and to see I'm the Lord of every generation. I'm the God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what he's asking of them. But he is saying, and, and, and you got to, in some ways, you can't really live a Christian life till you realize there's a spiritual battle going on that's more than just trying to get you to, you know, to behave or not behave or whatever, but is going after your heart. Going after your fears, your anxieties, your worries, the things that make you angry. Then Jesus reveals himself and he says, I'm the one who has eyes like blazing fire. See, in some ways, if you start to understand the spiritual world that you live in, you'll realize, and it's not a great realization, but it's a true realization, that the demons have been watching your family for generations. They know all of your patterns. They know your weaknesses. They know everywhere they've been able to exploit you in the past. So in some ways, the demonic realm is more psychologist and lawyer. Now, I'm not saying anything against psychologists or lawyers. I'm just saying... The effectiveness of the demonic comes from observing your patterns and your behaviors, your weaknesses and your strengths, and then exploiting them to their own advantage. But see, Jesus says, I have eyes of blazing fire. In other words, he goes beyond your patterns. He goes beyond your past. And he sees all the way to the center of your heart. He actually says later in this letter, I am the one who sees into your kidneys and your emotions. Now, none of us around here go, see into my kidneys. But see, in Greek, in the times that, that this was written, the kidneys, was the, the kidneys were actually the place of the emotions. So all of your, all of your emotions came from your gut. I have a gut feeling comes from this, this time. And then your heart was the center of all your choices. It was the place where your, your emotions, your thoughts, and your will all came together. It was the center of your being. So when we say that Jesus is after your heart, he, we're not saying he's just after your emotions. When we say Jesus is after your heart, we're saying he's after what you're most committed to, He's after what you most trust, what you trust, even stuff that you won't tell anybody else. His eyes of blazing fire see to the foundation of your soul. There's nothing that's hidden from him. Nothing. Now that can be scary if you're a fake. That can be scary if you're religious. That can be scary... Because you can hide from the rest of us. But he's saying, you can't hide from me. Then he says, I'm the one whose feet are a burnished or, or, or a kind of a polished by fire bronze. Now, the, if you look at this description of himself, it's, there's a number of things that he's implying here. One is that, that he's solid, that he has substance. The uh, other thing is, if you've ever seen a burnished bronze, it's beautiful. It's valuable. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. But it, in, in many ways, it doesn't get there without fire. It doesn't get there without trial. It doesn't get there. And he's saying, I'm steadfast 
I'm faithful. I've been through it. And, and on the one hand, if you're, like, if you're trying to, to fake it, if you're, if you're trying to fool people, then his burnished bronze feet will crush you. Because they won't, there's no way to fake him out. But on the other hand, if you're one who's honest in your struggles and you're honest with the temptations that you face and you're honest with these things that are going on in your life, then the fact that his feet are so substantive and that he's immovable and that he's unchangeable begins to be a source of comfort. There are people sometimes who say to me, there's no way Jesus can understand or has gone through what I've gone through. And here's, what, here's where I beg to differ on that. No one in this room has faced the power of temptation the way that Jesus has. Let me explain what I mean by that. The minute you give in to temptation, it doesn't need to exert any more power. Temptation only has to increase its power if you resist it. Because the moment it works, you don't need any more. Satan saves up his energy for some other place of resistance. Jesus, never giving in to temptation, knows the full power of temptation. He knows it all the way to its nth degree. So that when you say, no one knows what I've been through, not only does he know what you've been through, but he's overcome what you've been through. And when you see this picture of him with those burnished bronze feet, you look and you say, that's my Savior. That's the one who overcame for me. And he's immovable. And you begin to realize you have a base. You have a foundation that is unshakable. Some of you are getting this, three or four. See, but, but if, you're, if you're trying to play both sides, then those eyes follow you everywhere. <laughs> I was talking about this this week. I remember in my grandmother's living room, there was a picture of Jesus. And it was her, her living room that was off limits to us kids. But it was the only room in her house with carpet. So it was the only place my brother and I liked to wrestle. But we wrestled, and she, you know, you, I think here it's called tchotchkes or whatever, but there we call them uh, whatnots or something's crazy. But it was all her little figurines. And she said, don't wrestle in there. But it was the only place fun to wrestle in her whole house. But then you'd start grabbing, I'd grab my brother, I'd see Jesus looking at me. <laughs> so we'd move behind the couch, and his eyes followed us. I mean, we still do it, but it wasn't as fun. You know, there's something, there's something about when you're playing both sides. Then the eyes and the feet become intimidating. But when you're all out there and you're just honest and you're just open with your struggle, then the eyes and the feet become solidifying. And you begin to realize, I can hold on to this. This is my base. I belong to him. He belongs to me. And it's very powerful. So he's saying this to them. And then he says, here's what my eyes see. And he goes, I see the work that you're doing. Now, 
I love what he says here. It, it, in the original language, the way he puts this is not only do I see the works that you're doing, but you're even doing more of them now. He, he commends them not only for what they have done, but for the way they're growing in the present. So there's something of a movement in this church, maybe a revival, maybe a, 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 a renewal of, of covenant with God and faith in, in Jesus. But something's going on that in the present, something has become so real to them that they're even getting more of it now. I, I've been following Jesus since I was a teenager. And uh, I have to say to you that the thing that matters most to me more than, and more than anything else, more than making people happy, more than feeling safe or convenient, what, what matters to me more than anything else is to do what I know He loves me doing and to be the man that He, he, uh, he adores, that He loves. I, I despise it when I'm out of alignment with His heart and I'm just doing my own thing. And I'm doing it my own way. I have never found any comfort in that. I've never found any safety in that. And I've never found any satisfaction. I have found that the world can stimulate me but not satisfy me. But I find that when my heart, those deep commitments, those places of trust, when they are in alignment with what my Savior says is His heart, then I find that no matter what my circumstances or I have a strength that is immovable and unshakable. And so here's his heart. This is what he says, I want my church to be. He says, I want you to be loving. I want you to be full of faith. I want you to serve. And I want you to persevere. And these four all fit together. It fits together this way. You see, if... If you've never experienced the love of God, then you won't love God. If you're trying to get God to love you by loving God, then you don't really love God. It's just a bargain you're striking. It's just a business transaction. You're living as a renter on his earth, not as a son or a daughter. The Bible doesn't say we get his love because we love him. It says we love him because he first loved us. Now, this is sad of me to say, but the churches that I grew up in, there was nothing very real about the love of God. See, the love that, that Jesus commends in Thyatira is not affection. It's not the affection we have for one another because we're like each other, or we look like each other, we come from the same background. Jesus doesn't commend that because everybody can like who they like. This is about unconditional love. This is about receiving and experiencing the acceptance that has nothing to do with your past or your gifts or your money or anything else, but has to do with the fact that He just flat out loves you. And that His love will never fail. That He knows what He's getting into when He got into a relationship with you and you can't disappoint Him. And you don't make Him mad because all the wrath of God was extinguished and exhausted for you on the cross. So it's a love that you begin to experience first before you begin to give it out. And what happens in many churches is it's more about fear of God than it is love of God. 
Because it's easier to manipulate behavior with fear than it is with love. As a matter of fact, if there's real love, you don't manipulate at all. And so most people in leadership have always wanted the people to do what they wanted them to do. And they found it was so much easier to make them fearful and make them do out of the fear of consequences rather than out of love for God. And oftentimes it's because the leaders in the church didn't know the love of God any more than the people did. You see, you can't get to a place of trust, to a deep place of trust with somebody you're afraid of. If you're afraid of them, that negates trust. When you're afraid, you'll only show that part that you think they want you to see or that part you think that they will approve of. But see, when you're unconditionally accepted and you're unconditionally loved and you already know he knows everything, then you can trust him fully because there's no secrets with him. And you can begin to say, because I trust you, I'm not afraid anymore. Because I have faith in you, because I've seen your faithfulness, I rest in that faithfulness. And see, once you get to that place where you're filled with his love and you know that you're loved, you no longer have the question, am I worthy of love? Because his love makes you worthy. Augustine said it this way, we are lovable because he loves us. Then you begin to trust. And guess what? Once you start trusting... You have enough energy left over to serve. Notice, love, trust, service. But see, if you're serving to get love, it's not service. It's a business deal. It's why so many people will say, you know, prayer doesn't work. It's because they were trying to serve to get served. It's why so many people say faith doesn't work. What they mean is God won't do what I want him to do, so I'm giving up on God. But see, when you're at that place where Jesus, you're my treasure. No one has ever loved me like you love me. I trust you with everything. And you begin to say without contradiction, God is good. Then you begin to serve out of a place of abundance. You serve not out of an empty tank to get your tank filled up. You serve out of an overflowing tank. And you don't serve so that people will like you. You serve because you love them. Let me, let me, let me, let me give you an example of this. And I'm sure none of you have ever said this. But there are people who say, I just need to get something off my chest. No, none of you, right? <laughs> Why are you getting it off your chest? Not for them. Because it annoys you. Because it irritates you. Because it upsets you. Because it's inconvenient to you. See, when Jesus tells you the truth, He's telling you the truth because He loves you. And even if it's painful truth, it comes so that you'll be able to trust Him more deeply. So that you will serve not from a place of business arrangement, but you'll serve because you have a loving Father. You'll serve because you are a blessed and beloved child. It is amazing when it isn't just a phrase you use, but a truth that you've experienced that I am a well-loved child. Because then you begin to be able to serve others. And you serve them in a way that Jesus says, that's my heart. 
That's my heart. It's interesting, the word for service here is deacon. It's to wait on people. It's to do what they need done. It's not doing what you want done. It's doing what they need done. It's serving them in a way that actually meets the needs that they have. <laughs> I've always cracked up at people who are angry after they serve people. Well, they just didn't receive it. I'm like, well, maybe you didn't give them what they needed. And now it was all about you. And Jesus says, I love this when you start to serve the needs of the people out of not needing it yourself. You can always tell people who are self-serving. They're angry when people don't appreciate. They're angry when they don't get enough approval. They're angry when people, you know, don't give back. I'm not saying that this is, I'm not saying that this isn't natural. Of course it's natural, but we're talking about what's supernatural. It's natural. I say to Lisa, I love you. She goes, really? I go, that's not the response I wanted. I want you to say, oh, I love you back. So what am I doing? I'm playing a game with her. Now, I mean, lovers, uh, husbands, wives, we play these games. And they can be fun. But if that's all we're ever doing, then it's not service. It's a business. And it's never going to fulfill that place that Jesus is saying, this is my heart. This is what I see. You serving one another out of the overflow of the love that you've experienced for me, the trust that your heart is centered on, and now the needs that others have. Then he says this. He says, what I see in you is perseverance. The word that he uses here, and sometimes it's, it's translated as cheerful endurance or patient endurance, but the, the literal word means to remain under. Well, what happens to most of us when life gets tough? We want to get out from under. We want to get away from. We want to avoid. We want to escape. But here's what Jesus commends. And these are the ones he says will overcome. These are the ones who will conquer. Is those who know how to remain under even when it's overwhelming to us. Wow. He doesn't say in this how long will have to stay. He doesn't say what the reward will be or what the end result will be if we do stay. I mean, there are a lot of us, if we're honest, we, we can endure a whole lot if we know how long it's going to last and if we know what we'll get at the end of it. He doesn't promise that. He just says, what I really affirm in you is your willingness to stay to be under, even when everything in you cries out to get out from under. Now, the, the historical context of this letter is that in order to be fully employed in Thyatira, you had to join a guild. A guild is like a trade union. In order to be in that guild or that trade union, there were common dinners that had to be Attended. They could be weekly, monthly. I, I, I'm not sure how often they were. But those were religious dinners. So it was a time of worship to the God, the patron God of your union. So all meat, all, all the food would be dedicated as an offering to the God. And then you would eat as an act of worship 
Along with that also was that part of the worship often included some kind of sexual union. Depending on the the religious or the, the deity that your trade guild was a part of, you would also have to participate in some type of sexual union of some kind along with your fellow workers. And of course, with Jesus coming into their lives and the Holy Spirit coming into their lives, one, they no longer could give allegiance to the God of their union. Two, they were being called into a sexual fidelity and purity of their body because their bodies belong to the Lord. Well, what Jesus says that he sees in the midst of them is... Uh, sorry about that. What he sees in the midst of them is that a, a, an influential woman has arisen in the church. She proclaims herself a prophetess. She, Jesus calls her a self-proclaimed prophetess. If she lived today, she would go down to Kinko's. She would get her uh, business card and she would put Prophetess Jezebel open Monday through Friday, uh, 9 to 5, and you can meet with me. She is a self-proclaimed prophetess, but beyond that, she has incredible influence in the church. And Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, what he's doing there is he's relating the spirit behind this woman and her influence and the direction she's taking the church to the same spirit that was behind the queen who was the wife of Ahab, whose name was Jezebel. It was in the period of time around 800, in the 800s BC when Ahab uh, rose to be king over Israel. He took a wife from Lebanon who was uh, the daughter of the king of Sidon. And this, this wife, Jezebel, seduced the nation of Israel. She seduced them with sexual immorality, which led them to abdicate their worship, their adoration of Yahweh as the one true God, and begin to syncretize in the worship of other gods, particularly, and the Bible shows these particular ones as particularly evil and destructive to the people, the god Baal and the goddess Ash, or the Asherah poles. Both of these have to do with power and also sexual fertility and virility and so what jezebel did was she lured the people away from purity and lured them in with power and seduced them with sex and here is what jesus the lord of the church is saying is happening in this church now my thought on this is wouldn't you have loved to have been this messenger who brought this letter? Because what happened is that John completed the writing. He gave this to a messenger who rode a circuit. Now he's on the fourth church, and he's reading this letter. Now, I don't know if the messenger knew who this woman was. He might have. But I can guarantee you this. Everybody in the church knew who this woman was. And at that point, he probably goes, don't kill the messenger. I'm just bringing the message. Because everything that Jesus says from this point on is fairly harsh. Now, there's, there's two levels to this, and I don't, I don't have time to, to unpack both. One is a corporate level. 
And the corporate level is seen in the relationship between Jezebel and her husband Ahab. The, the, the responsibility, the authority to lead the people was on the shoulders of Ahab. But he abdicated that responsibility. Instead of standing up and leading the people, he had a person who did not have the responsibility, but now had all the influence and the power. She had no accountability. She had no real responsibility. But she is directing the affairs of the nation. Corporately, what it shows us is many times you cannot have a Jezebel without an Ahab. So it's very likely, it's awful, it's possible that the woman that Jesus is referring to is the pastor's wife. Because you have to have an Ahab to have a Jezebel. And so there's a corporate, there's a corporate issue here. And simply spoken, it's when people who have the responsibility and the authority to make decisions abdicate to others on the basis of influence and power. And this spirit, friends, is not female, it's not male. It is, that, it is that seductive voice that says, you should get your way. It's the seductive voice that says, why aren't you in control? Why don't they do what you think they ought to do? And all of us are susceptible to falling under the, the, the I would say, the seduction of a controlling spirit. Uh, many of us, when we're, when we're giving in to complaining, when we're venting, when we're angry, we're very susceptible in those moments to step outside of the alignment with the Spirit, to step outside of the alignment with the Lord, and to step into a counterfeit power. The other thing is this. On a personal level, this Spirit, this, this supercharged seduction and power, uses the weapon of illicitness, illicitness, to entice you to get your adrenaline going, to get you uh, pain relief, to get you a sense of escape or fantasy or whatever it is. There is a power in that which is illicit that is incredibly different than the power of that which is pure. The illicit is immediate. The illicit is overwhelming, but it's also a bondage and a trap. Let me, there's the corporate aspect. We could talk a long time. I want to talk on a personal aspect because I believe that, that the seductive power that Jesus is talking about, and he talks about how damaging and destructive this is, I believe it comes against each of us personally. Let me illustrate it from a story. There was a young uh, young father, young husband, maybe about 30 years old or so, who came to me uh, as his pastor. And uh, he told me the story about his marriage and his life. And it, and it went sort of like this. He, he was a nerd and a geek. He was unattractive physically. And uh, so he was in a ministry in uh, his uh, college campus or whatever it was. And no, none of the women would pay any attention to him. But as he uh, graduated, there was this one young woman in a Bible study who started kind of liking him and talking to him. And he said, well, she was kind of cute and stuff. So he decided he would marry her. So he married her. 
And he said, you know, we had two kids. She got fat and she's ugly and I'm just unattracted to her. I'm not attracted to her at all. <laughs> I don't know what he was wanting me to say at that point. You know, do I, you know, what do you want me to tell her? What do you want it to do? And he, but what had happened is she had gone that direction. He had gotten rich, kind of trimmed up a bit. And suddenly all kinds of women were attracted to him. So he was wrestling with, okay, I'm not attracted to my wife, but I, I'm a Christian and I, I promised and I told her that, you know, I would be her husband and faithful, but I don't want to be. I want to leave her and leave the children. I want to go and satisfy myself sexually. And, and I don't remember fully what I said to him. It's been probably 27 years since that happened, but 20 years or more. But, but I do remember this. How powerful that seduction was. How natural it seemed. He's, he's looking over at his wife and he, he has no desire for her. In other words, he doesn't lust after her anymore. So now he's going to discard her. And he's going to go satisfy his lust somewhere else. And I, I don't know if you understand this or not, but this is an issue of worship. This is an issue of idolatry. What Jesus is saying in this is that the seduction may use illicitness. It may use sexual immorality. But the goal is not just to make you sexually immoral. It's to make you an idolater. Let me explain what I mean by this. You see, if Jesus is your one treasure, if Jesus is your ultimate, if he is truly your God and Jesus has put you in a difficult marriage or Jesus, you no longer attracted to your wife or your husband or, or you're single and you can't find a husband or a wife. Even if that's so, you still have your treasure if Jesus is your treasure. And then what does he say? I commend you for persevering. I commend you for staying with it. He doesn't say, oh, I know it's hard. Go find somebody else. Because when you do that, you, you have said, Jesus, you're not really my treasure. You're just in my life to give me my treasure. Prayer is just in my life so that I'll get my treasure. Do you know what pornography is? It's idolatry. It, it proposes a life that's not real, but you begin to think you're supposed to have it. It proposes a way of relating that's not real. But in fantasy, it becomes real. And before long, God's not good enough. Life's not good enough. Your husband, your wife, your, 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 your purity's not good enough. You've got to have the illicit or you won't be alive. This is why Jesus comes after the Jezebel spirit is because the seduction doesn't stop with sexual immorality. It doesn't stop until Jesus is no longer your treasure. Are you hearing me? I know it's heavy, but it's also brilliant that I'm what I'm explaining to you right now. I'm amazing myself a little bit at this moment. <laughs> I had to take the load off a little bit there. You understand what I'm saying though? Like just to just to quell your lust, just to restrain your temptation is not enough because you can't do it 24-7. What he's saying is 
that the goal isn't so that you just become sexually pure. The goal is that Jesus is your treasure. That Jesus is your ultimate. In some ways, it's not just repenting, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's repenting and saying, that's not the source of my life. That's not ultimate for me. I will not give myself to anything that is not ultimate to me. And when you find out that something other than Jesus is ultimate, Jesus says, repent. Because that thing isn't going to love you. That thing is going to use you. That thing's not going to put trust in you. That thing's going to betray your trust. That thing's not going to serve you. It's going to use you and cast you aside. And it's not going to persevere with you. Jesus persevered with you to hell and back. He will persevere to the end with you. That which you've entrusted to him, he is faithful with. See, it is not as if those pulls are not real. The pull of temptation is real. The pull of sexual gratification is real. The pull of illicitness is real. But Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. I have eyes like blazing fire. I have feet of burnished bronze. Don't look at that. Look at me. Don't look to that. Look to me. And then remain. All right. The music's going. I got to quit. But I got to tell you what he says for the reward. You see, Jezebel says, my reward is immediate. You'll have immediate orgasm, or you'll have immediate satisfaction, or you'll have immediate power. Never tells you what the cost is going to be. Here's what Jesus says. If you endure, if you overcome, if you conquer, then I'll give you the authority. See, what Jezebel does is short-lived power. What Jesus gives is eternal authority. The authority the Father gave me, I give to you. And then he expands and he says, and it'll be over nations. It'll be over nations. So basically what he's saying, when you, when you master authority over your own body, then he can give you authority over nations. But if you keep being seduced by illicit power and illicit satisfaction, you'll have authority over nothing. See, the enemy tries to deceive you to think of immediacy. And Jesus lets you see eternity. And the question then comes down, and this is, this is the interesting part. He doesn't make you do it. He says, unless you repent. When you repent. And repentance, no one else can do for you. Because in the end, if you don't believe this, then you're not going to live this. If you're not going to choose this, then nobody else can choose it for you. And so Jesus says, let, the, let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Will you stand with me? I know our time is up, but there are chains that can fall off today. I, 
See, the spirit of Jezebel says, it's okay, go ahead, go to the pornography. You deserve it. You're in pain. I can give you some immediate relief. And Jesus says, persevere. Jesus says, stand firm, hold fast. He says, there's only one burden I ask of you, to hold fast. To hold fast. Some of you, you're in a bad marriage. It's difficult. You're, you know, either, you know, there's... A, there's, there's pain there, there's distrust there, there's whatever's going on. And Jesus says, don't just fix it. Don't just run out. Lean into me. Let your love come from me first. Let your trust come from me first. See, unless Jesus restores your trust, no human will ever restore your trust. So, we have prayer people here today. If there's a specific area where you know the spirit, this spirit that Jesus said, I, I don't want you to tolerate anymore. If that spirit's been getting its way with you or that spirit's trying to get its way with you, would you come and tell one other human being? The Bible says if two of you agree is touching anything, that he'll do it. I believe victory can be gained today. Even if this means you have to kind of change some of your plans, you, you, somebody meet with you and talk with you, whatever it might be. You're here today because Jesus wants to be your treasure. You're here today because the Son of God has spoken. And he's written a letter for you. He wrote it almost 2,000 years ago, but he, he left it in circulation so it would get to you. For him to say to you, I want you to overcome. I want to give you authority. Their ministers are future ministers in this room. And unless you get power over your body, you will not have authority over the nations. Today's the day to make that right. But if you get that power, you will get authority. It's awesome, friends. I mean, some of it's just psychological. When you stop having to fight lust every day, you actually have energy for other things. And your mind and your, your heart gets free and you can think and there's a purity that comes. Get free today. Set your eyes on the Son of God. He set His eyes on you. Lord, we seal what you've done today, what you're doing. You're here. We receive you. We repent. We repent of our compromise, our corruption. Lord, you asked us to be pure. You asked us to be pure in body. You asked us to be singleness and our eyesight towards you. Lord, we choose that today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. We have some folks up here to pray with you before you go.